Father in heaven, we thank you for this nice, crisp, clear, cool morning that lets us uh, get up without sweating. How thankful we are for when you warm us, how thankful we are for when you cool us, and really you provide us with everything. Father, you've provided us with your word that is so absolutely clear about what our greatest need is in Jesus Christ and how you have met it through him. And so, Father, we pray that as we continue looking at this catechism that summarizes the teaching of your word, that it would give us deeper insight into who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we are continuing to do our look at the uh, order of salvation as we work our way through the catechism. And uh, you remember that the order of salvation is just a simple way of listing what it is that the Holy Spirit does for us. We've already seen that Jesus accomplishes our redemption. In other words, when he goes to the cross, he really does pay the penalty that we owe God for our sin. Uh, That is something that is not theoretical. It's not a potential. It's not that he's buying the opportunity for us, but he actually pays for our sin. He accomplishes our redemption. But of course, there comes a time when we enter onto the stage because we weren't around 2,000 years ago, and at that point, the Holy Spirit comes and he applies that finished redemption to us. And that's what the order of salvation does. And so we've been working our way through that these last few weeks as the uh, uh, catechism does as well. So uh, now that we have a new dry erase board, we have to write the order of salvation again. This is a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to remember those steps and to be able to put them up there. So um, without further ado, what was the first one? Anybody remember? What was the very first one of these? Um, What was that? Election certainly is something that happens, but it's not so much what the Holy Spirit does in applying. It does determine who the Holy Spirit applies redemption to. So absolutely right in that regard. But in and of itself, technically, it wouldn't be it. So effectual calling. calling. Somebody's looking at the catechism, which is wonderful. (laughs) Effectual calling, which, as we've said, really kind of is made up of two parts, right? There's an external call, and then there's our regeneration, where we actually are made into a new creation that enables us to respond to that call. And then how do we respond to that call? The next thing we saw? Conversion, which also is a two-parter, two sides of the same coin. We exercise in response to now that we're finally a new creation, we exercise, exercise faith and repentance. We turn away from our sin, turn away from our idols and embrace Christ. And as a result of our having expressed faith in Christ, what happens next? We are justified. Yes, we are made right with God, declared to be right with him. It's a legal declaration, which is then followed by adoption. This is what we talked about last week. We are then adopted into the family of God. And then the Holy Spirit is engaged in an ongoing work, which we're looking at today, which is? Sanctification, and one more, which, with which we end it all, quite literally, glorification. So there you go, great. You guys are now scholars. Good, so we're going to be using this over the next few weeks, and there we have it. All right, so today we're going to be looking at sanctification, which is where we're at today, very near the bottom of the ordo 
salutis, as it's known in Latin, or order of salvation in English. So um, let's go ahead and take a look at our catechism question. You can find it again uh, if you don't have a personal copy or have it already ingrained in memory or on your smartphone. Um, you can always turn to uh, the back of a hymnal somewhere around page, page 870 or 871. Uh, you should be able to find question 35. Question 35. And uh, I will ask, I'll ask somebody to look that up. And in the meantime, you know what? We, now that we have some room, we can list some of the scripture passages that will be nice to, uh, to look up. We've got a, quite a few to look at. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Ephesians 4.23 and following. Uh, Romans 6. Oh, and this is going to be a key one. Philippians 2. We're going to be look, doing this one several times today. That one's going to be key. Uh, let's take a look at Colossians 3, 9 and following. 1 John 3, 3 through 9. Romans 7, 7 through 25. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. We may not get to all of these, but we should get a good chunk of them. All right, um, so... <laughs> Let's actually start with the class now. Probably shouldn't have had all that up there earlier. And uh, let's take a look at the question on sanctification. And uh, let's see, um, can, I pick on, can I pick on one of the guys who's not reading to read the question and answer? Question 35, one of those who's not taking a scripture text. All right, question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. All right, as usual, the catechism question, what it does for us is it gives us a summary of the scriptural teaching and it, it always provides at the very bare level of basic understanding, the kind of, that, a, that a child could, could have, because in fact this catechism was meant for children, but as always, it provides plenty of room for us to be able to do a deeper dive into it. So at the very surface level, when we look at it, we start with that very first thing that we've been saying along for each and every one of these. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It is, again, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Will somebody read? Who's got Second Thessalonians 2.13? All right, so there it speaks about the sanctification by the Spirit. So this is the work of God in sanctifying us. But what does it mean that we are sanctified? Well, it tells us that we are being renewed. We're being renewed, not partially, but in the whole man. And what it means by that is every aspect, in the same way that total depravity, the fall, affected the whole of our nature. It didn't make us as depraved as we could be, but the total depravity aspect means that the totality of our human nature was touched by sin, so that our bodies are affected by sin, our minds are affected by sin, our wills, our emotions, and so on, in the same way, sanctification begins the process of reversing that, and the whole of who we are, again, is going to be changed and touched by the gospel this time, not by sin, but by grace. And so, again, our emotions, our minds, and all those sorts of things. Uh, to that end, can somebody read Ephesians four twenty-three through 24? All right, so there it is. We have this image of God, as it says in the uh, the catechism question, we are being renewed in the whole man after the image of God. Paul says that it is in that likeness of God, of righteousness and true holiness, that we are being renewed. That's the renewal of it. And then it tells us that this renewal then includes two things. 
we are enabled more to, and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So we leave behind, as it were, almost putting to, the language is that of putting to death the old nature of sin in order that we might grab a hold of that new nature. This one is we die to it, and this one we live increasingly to righteousness. And that we can see in Romans 6, uh, 4 through, what did I put up there? I put up 4 through 6. Actually, if somebody can just read verse 4 and verse 6, you can skip 5 for now. All right, thank you so much. So you see that idea of dying to sin, dying to the old nature, and instead living to Christ, living to uh, a way of grace and a way of obedience. So at the very basic then, when we look at it and say, what is sanctification? It is this renewal in us where we are being made more and more conformed to the image of Christ, able to leave behind our sinful selves and begin to live more and more for righteousness. So that's, that's the basics of sanctification. So let's go ahead and now say some things that are a little more uh, in-depth. Uh, the first one, as we've pointed out already, is that sanctification is the work of God in our lives. But there is something that's a little unique about that because even as we talk about the work of God in us, uh, no man sanctifies himself, right? No man can sit there and say, I have the ability to pull myself up by the bootstraps and become holy in and of myself. Even though it's the work of God, we are responsible for working out our salvation as it were. We're responsible for that process. We're active in that process. Uh, who's got Philippians chapter two? This is the passage that is absolutely central to understanding how sanctification works. You got that, Margaret Ann? All right, thank you. You see what Paul is saying? We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, by the way, work out your own salvation doesn't mean that you save yourself. It says you've been given the salvation and you are working out what it means to be a person who is saved. But there's this active participatory aspect to it. We're the ones who are working it out. And yet at the same time, we do so with the full comfort and assurance and indeed the motivation of knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to work his good pleasure. What he wants is what he's going to work out in us. And yet we're the ones who are actually working it out. So how, does these, how do these two things work together? How is sanctification both a work of God and at the same time a work of man? Russ, is that, uh, you're just looking cool. Okay. Just. There we go. They're just kicking back and thinking, yeah, I got this. All right. Uh, just wanted to be sure. So let's go ahead and dive in. And there's three particular aspects of sanctification that I think we want to bring out today and look at so we can better understand how these two work together. The first one is that sanctification begins with a definitive and inward change. If, uh, if you're in our uh, officer training class that we just have gone through, you know that when we work through the order of salvation, there's actually one more aspect that we've talked about. Sanctification as we've seen so far, is a progressive working, which we're going to talk about more in a moment. But there is a moment where we are definitively changed. It happens at the moment of our regeneration. Uh, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's been this radical change so that we know that, there, that that inward change is the very beginning, that definitive setting apart, because the word sanctification is just from the Latin word sanctus, and it comes from 
uh, it's, it's from where we get sanctification and the word saints. Uh, the word holy is actually from the same, although it comes from a different derivation in Old English, but um, they both mean the same thing, a setting apart. So we are at one point set apart from the world, set apart from the ways of thinking and living of the world, and we begin this new life. Uh, let's see, who's got Colossians 3, 9 through 10? All right, so again, this language of taking off the old nature, the old self. Paul almost talks about it like if we were, you know, taking off clothing and putting on the new nature, the new self. And it happens in that moment when we are uh, made new. Now, by the way, you might say, okay, then at that point, why aren't I perfect? Why aren't I yet completely conformed to the image of Christ? Why do we need the progressive sanctification to become more and more? We know that when we're renewed by regeneration, we're not yet made perfect. It doesn't happen all at once. Why is that? And I think the answer to that, other than we want to look at the way God wants to work in our lives, and I think one of the things is God could have snapped his fingers and enabled us to be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ in one shot. He could have done that. And while we don't get a clear answer, there's no chapter and verse that I can point to that explains it, the one thing that we see again and again and again is that through our experience of God's grace and through our experience of our own sin and, and, and God's grace in response to that, we come to a deeper understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. We come to a deeper understanding of his justice and his mercy and his compassion in ways that probably would not have happened if we had not gone through those moments. So my view is that, for example, why would God even allow the fall to happen? Because God could have told Adam and revealed to Adam you know, who he was in his perfection, and Adam would have believed all of that, but he never would have experienced directly some of the aspects of who God is. And so the same thing with us, we not only are going through that, but in our sanctification, we experience moments where we realize just how vile we are, how deserving we are of condemnation, and then we get to see God's grace as he works and makes us something that we know was not something that we could have done ourselves, right? If we were to look, and I didn't put it up there, but we were to look at Romans chapter five, where it talks about that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. That golden chain, suffering produces perseverance. Well, we get that because we persevere through that, and as we persevere through the difficulty of the suffering, it builds up our character. But how does that character build up hope? Because you begin to realize that God is actually making of you that which he had said he was going to, and it was not something that you would have been able to do on your own. You're able to look back and see how God has changed you. That's what the hope is, that we're really being brought to this, this promised redemption, this promised salvation, where we're going to be free of sin. And so um, God does not immediately at regeneration zoom us to perfection. And yet, this is where a lot of Christians, we can just speak about this pastorally, where a lot of Christians then wrestle and wonder, can I lose my salvation or am I good enough? And, and just all sorts of things that afflict our assurance and, and make us wonder whether we really belong to God. But think of it this way. An example has been used, G.I. Williamson talks about using a baby. You know, a baby is not a full-born human being. I think, you know, the best way of maybe looking at it is even something more radical. In fact, I left it in my study. I shouldn't have done that. I should have brought it. I didn't think about it right now because I've used it for another class. But um, 
I have a big old acorn. It's like that big sitting in my study. Now, if I were to do a, a, a DNA test of that acorn, what would it show itself as? Mm-mm. Yeah, what kind of tree? An oak tree. There is genetically no difference between the acorn and the oak tree. The acorn is an oak tree. It just still has to develop. It still has to blossom into that oak tree. And so God is at work in us. Even now, after the regeneration, we are a new creation. We do have a new DNA, as it were. We are different. That we haven't completely grown into the oak tree, okay, is, is the process that we're in, and that process of growing. But we're no less that new creation. Does that make sense? Right? Or think of a, of a caterpillar. You take the DNA of a caterpillar, and it shows up as exactly the same DNA as a butterfly, so how do we become that butterfly? That's what God is at work, creating it in us, that sort of thing. And we might look and say, I'm just a caterpillar and I'm hairy and I inch along the ground and all that other stuff. And yet, you really are this wonderful new creature that's going to become, in the fullness of time, a butterfly. So even though the process of regeneration, when that happens, you're not perfected, there really has been a change. Now you might say, well, those are all transformative, but there's nothing evil in them. So let me try to use another example. Some of you here might remember in 2015, I you know, ended up in the hospital and it was really, really bad and the doctors messed up and you know, there was emergency surgery because of all that and so on. And, you know, and I got pretty bad and I came close. They didn't tell me this until after the end, but they said it was bad enough that if they you know, hadn't acted in certain ways, then you know, I would have died. I lost 31 pounds, which let's face it, I don't have a whole lot of room to, to lose that level of weight. And, um, and things were you know, uh, a little bit on the sketchy front there. Um, at some point, they finally, finally were able to deal with the root problem, which were infections that were caused by when a doctor was in there and perforated my, my colon, which was not good. And it caused all sorts of bad things to happen. And so those caused infections that were spreading all throughout in my chest cavity and my you know, lungs filled with fluid and I couldn't breathe. And you know, it was bad. Once they finally had that under control, they had dealt with the issue. The infection was gone. It took me months to recover from that, to regain the weight, to have the healing, and so on. That's a, maybe a better picture even of what we go through Yes, once the infection, as it were, of, of, uh, of sin in terms of, uh, of it being the active force in our life is dealt with by the Holy Spirit at regeneration, there still is this time in which we have to slough off and outgrow those effects. It's still there. I still had the weakness. In other words, at whatever point that infection finally died, I didn't immediately bounce back with 100% energy and so on. Still felt weak, still felt sick, still was underweight, all those sorts of things. So it takes a while to get back, and that's what God is working in us. Does that all make sense? So it's important for us to understand that um, even though this renewal is a one-time event, it's not complete, and God has chosen to not make it uh, something that's complete. I think in large part so that we can experience his power 
in our life. But the point is that sin no longer has dominion in us. We have literally and really have passed from death unto life. And, um, and we know that because if I were to take your spiritual DNA, yeah, you might look like a caterpillar. You might look like an acorn. But your spiritual DNA shows me that you are an oak tree, that you are a butterfly, that you are a redeemed child of God. And that makes all the difference in the world. So that's the first thing we see, that there is, in fact, a definitive internal change with sanctification. But the next part is the one that we're all familiar with that we tend to think of when we think of sanctification, which is that it is a progressive work from that point on. It is a gradual work from that point on. We're increasingly as we saw in the catechism question, you die to your old nature, you set aside sin, you live to the new nature. And it's something that's never ever completely uh, finished in this life. It's just ongoing in your heart, um, on and on and on. And that means that as a believer, you will always be in conflict with sin. I've sometimes have had people sit there and say, am I really a believer? Because I'm in battle with sin. And the answer is, that is precisely why I know that you are a believer, because you are in battle with sin. Uh, J.T. Bora used to be an elder here before he moved away to Austin, a fantastic elder, and he used to, um, in our newcomers class, when he used to talk about this thing, he would sit there and say, who is more tempted when he sees a pretty girl, Billy Graham or Bill Clinton? What do you mean by that? There you go, that is the right answer. Most people sit there and say, well, Bill Clinton, he's the one who has that predilection. But no, Bill Clinton doesn't wrestle with temptation. He gives into it immediately. Billy Graham, who, like all of us, is you know, going to be tempted by lust and so on, wrestles and fights and so on, and it actually makes his temptation deeper and so on. That is, in fact, what happens to us. And so the believer, when you are wrestling with sin... That actually is the evidence that you see there. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But there's real evidence there of the fact that we are believers because the unbeliever just gives into it. Uh, who's got First John chapter 3? If you'll, if you'll read 3 through 9. All right, thank you so much. You can see that opening verse in John 3, 1 John 3, 3 in the closing verse. That first one, it says that our desire is to purify ourselves even as the Lord, even as Jesus is pure, and then it several times repeats, the, the redeemed person will not continue under the dominion of sin. He will not keep on sinning. She will not succumb repeatedly to sin because the one who is born of God does not continually practice sin for the seed of God remains or abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, that idea here of adoption, you know, where we have, well, actually regeneration, but shown in adoption. So there is this, this radical change in you that you will be struggling with sin. It does not come naturally to you. Now, does the believer sin? Yes, he does. And uh, the difference is that the believer will never say, my sin is all right and it's okay. They'll always know, they'll always feel that it is uh, something that's wrong. They'll never be satisfied with being in that position and we're always gonna be fighting against it. So you can see that in Romans chapter 7. Who's got the uh, Romans 7 passage? If you will, Daniel. All right, thank you so much. Long passage, but you can see what uh, Paul is getting at in the main. He's talking about his struggling with sin. 
And, uh, and he starts by talking about the law. The law in itself is good, but unfortunately for us, the law reflects our sin. It shows us how far short we fall. You know, here it is, we're supposed to be doing this, we're supposed to be doing that. And instead the law shows us our sinfulness. And so he talks then about the wrestling. Now, some people have thought that at this point in Romans, that Paul gets autobiographical or you know, begins to talk about himself and what he's doing is he's discussing his life before he was a believer, the wrestling back and forth with sin. And that's uh, uh, pretty common in, uh, you know, with our Baptistic friends, uh, Bible churches and so on. You'll hear that being talked about, that this was Paul wrestling with, his, uh, with sin before his conversion. But there are several reasons why that doesn't hold water. One is the very fact that he talks about sometimes he does what is right and obeys and sometimes he does not. And he even talks about, but I love the law. And I want to do the, this is very near the end of our passage. He says that the unbeliever does not wrestle with sin. He may do good things, as we'll see in just a moment, but they come from a different place. And he does not really love the law of God. Now, this is Paul talking about the experience of believers after conversion, that even though there has been this radical change in us, yet there are these, as he talks about, this old nature. See, the very old, the very term that, you know, that he uses shows us that this is what happens after our conversion. This old nature still has these remnants in us so that he wrestles with his sin and he's just being very honest about what that struggle is like. He doesn't sit there and say, oh, I'm the Apostle Paul and I just walk through life just perfectly sound. No, he talks about, I wrestle with it and I want to do the things that are right and I end up not doing it and then there are these things that I know I not ought to do and what do I end up? I do those things and I'm just back and forth and, and finally in the end he says, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? You know, this 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 fleshly you know, body that we have that still leads us to sin. And he says, oh, thanks be to God because the struggle and the victory is in Christ. So he's really discussing our everyday struggle with sin. Uh, but it's, you know, when we do the Lord's Supper, and, I, and I, one of the things I say when we so-called fence the table is that if you are repentant of your sin, you are to come. The, the table is meant to strengthen Sinners who are struggling with their sin, not for people who, you know, have, have achieved victory and, and, and so on. Because if that were the requirement, how many of us could come forward? Not a single one. And none of us would be able to go. And that includes the pastor, the elders, and so on. It is precisely meant for us because we struggle with sin. That's what it's there for. Uh, I've heard people say, and perhaps you've heard it too, that, you know, when a person feels like he has hit a spiritual plateau, right? I'm at the, I'm at the top. I'm just cruising the spiritual plateau. Everything in my life now is smooth spiritually. What that tells me is that they're not on the very top. Where are they? They're on the seafloor. You know, they're on the bottom where it's smooth. Because that's the only way that you have things smooth. When you're not struggling, when you're no longer fighting, when you've given up. Because in reality... We're kind of, uh, we get better and then, then we wrestle with it and, and, and just so on and so on. Now, is there in fact a progressive, you know, getting better? Yes, there is. But it is a constant struggle every step of the way. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, but I want to finish with that last thing that I want to say because I said there were three aspects of sanctification we want to bring out. So now that we've seen that there's this definitive change that then progressively is being worked out in us, we get to this last point, which is sanctification is also synergistic. Synergistic. It is, in fact, a work in which both 
we as human beings and God are active. That doesn't mean that, that our work is the equal of the work of God, because it certainly is not. Uh, but it does mean that we are, as we read in that Philippians 2.12 passage, we're to, to, you know, to work out our salvation. That, that is there. But in the end, the one who is enabling us and equipping us to do that is God. Right? He's working in us to will and to do uh, that which is his good pleasure. And so uh, we are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So there is no sanctification that you can do, no uh, progressive growing that you could do in your own strength. It all comes out of God. He gets the credit at the very end. It's just like when Jesus says, you know, well done, uh, good and faithful servant, but we're really just that. We're unprofitable servants, to use Jesus' language. So we have to recognize that it is a coming together of our work and God's work, but our work is wholly dependent on God's work. That makes sense? So with that, then, I do want to talk briefly about this idea of us actually knowing. How do I know, then, that I have been saved? Where's the evidence? And we already kind of talked about that. When you see that struggle, you already know that that person is a person who is being sanctified. When you see that person increasingly dying to sin, when you see that person increasingly living more and more to righteousness, uh, who's got the first John? Did we do first John? No, we didn't write it up there. Uh, there's a, actually, it's a first John 2.29, and I think I did not put that up there. I did not. Um, could you flip to first John 2.29, Tegan? Okay. So if you see that behavior, then you know that you are indeed a child of God. You have been born of him, right? First um, John 5.3, he says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous, right? So none of us, of course, keeps the commandments perfectly. Who's got First John 1, 8 through 10? All right, thank you. So yes, we are definitely going to sin, no doubt about it. And yet, if you see righteousness, as it were, acts of, of, of doing the things that are right, then absolutely you can tell that that person, as uh, the First John 2.29 reads, that person is born of, um, of God, is, is born of him, it says in the text. So what does that tell us? It means that you can compare a believer and unbeliever who at first on the outside look to be about the same because the believer is, yes, doing things that are good, but at times still falls into sin. And you might say, well, the unbeliever also does things that, you know, surf- that on the surface certainly seem to be good, but there's a world of difference between the two of them. First thing you see is that the believer is actually glad that God has this requirement of these, of these good things, of these holy things, of these high, you know, high expectations. Those things, as we read earlier, um, where was it we saw it? Where, um, where it says in the law is not grievous. Uh, yeah, First John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. The, um, the believer does not feel that they're in imposition. He's glad that these uh, requirements of holiness are there. The, the unbeliever does not feel that way. And he feels that it's a limitation, an imposition, uh, something that limits his freedom rather than, as, uh, as, as James refers to it twice uh, in James chapter 1 and 2, as the, the law of the, the, the royal law of liberty, as a law of freedom. So that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that the believer 
will act out of gratitude. That's his motivation for obedience, but that's not the motivation of the unbeliever. The unbeliever, when he does do on the surface a good thing, does it out of uh, either a desire for self-preservation or a desire to gain righteousness in the eyes of God. But the unbeliever knows that he can't gain any righteousness. He's simply responding out of gratitude, and that makes all the big difference. Uh, some of you have heard me use the example of uh, Sable and Skinny, right? Some of you have heard those? Some of you have not heard Sable and Skinny? Oh, we got to talk about I know the ones who've heard it is like, oh, here he goes again. But back in the early 90s, okay, my mom, after, um, after Hurricane Andrew, my mom adopted a dog that was found. And they called him Skinny because he was found on the streets and he was very, very skinny. And they brought him in and took care of him and everything, and he stopped being skinny because they took good care of him, and he was just a, a pleasant little dog. He obeyed my mom. You all know my mom. She's not changed, and she's just always been gentle and so on. Skinny obeyed my mom perfectly, but he obeyed out of fear. He was constantly afraid that he was going to get punished. Our guess is that he had been with an abusive, a previous owner who had been abusive to him. And so his obedience on the surface would look like any other obedience, but it was driven by that fear. At the very same time that my mom had Skinny, we had Mary Jo and I who didn't have kids yet, and we had uh, purchased a little dog called Sable, a little English Cocker Spaniel, and we got her straight from the breeder, so she never had been anywhere else. She never had known anything but the love that, you know, two married people without kids can lavish on a cute little puppy dog, Right. And so Sable also was very, very obedient and did everything that she was asked. But she did so out of love. She did her obedience out of gratitude. Her little, not just her tail, her tail had been docked like all English cockers. Her whole backside would just wag out of sheer happiness. So when you looked at Skinny and when you looked at Sable, here you had these two animals that both exhibited obedience but from two very different motivations. And up through the mid-90s, I would actually use both animals. I'd bring them in and I would demonstrate that. They both have gone on to doggy heaven. But um, I would use both of them to illustrate that point. And it was so very, very evident when you saw them. And I believe that there's many, many, um, you know, again, when you look out there, you can see people and you can tell their motivation that driving, that's driving them is not the gratitude of a believer who's thankful for redemption and so on. It's driven by fear. It's driven by a desire to to appease God, it's driven by a desire to get God to bless us, as it were. The believer recognizes he's already been blessed, and so he simply responds out of gratitude. And perhaps the other uh, 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 big difference is that the unbeliever, or rather the believer, recognizes that even when he's doing good, he's not ultimately measuring up. He still falls short. The unbeliever feels that he's done what he's done and he's satisfied with it and it's good enough and he doesn't get why other people don't realize how good he really is. And that's the very last thing I want to talk about. Um, This phenomena of believers, even when we do something right, still don't feel that it's not there. That that should not make us doubt. Again, we should be able to see in ourselves that, that we're increasingly more doing what's right. But how can that happen if we're being progressively sanctified and more and more becoming like Christ? How can we be more and more dissatisfied with what we're doing? I think the issue there is that part of also what God is creating in us is humility. When you look in the Bible and you see major figures like Moses and David 
later in the New Testament, you get Peter, you get Paul, all these men who had uh, at times committed sin and sometimes even grievous sin. Right? Moses had committed murder and he had disobeyed a direct order from God and acted in ways he should not. David had committed adultery and as a result of the adultery covered up, he commits murder and so on. And later on, even he abuses his position as a king and he uses his authority and so on. Peter, of course, in denying Christ. Every one of these guys, as you see, do grievous sin. And yet you see in every one of those situations is that they come back from it. They recover from it. They are forgiven and they're able to continue on and they continue to actually be better than they were before. But they don't become prouder as they, I don't know if that's the right word. They don't become you know, prouder as they go on from there. In fact, if anything, they grow more humble because they see the work of God in us. This is one of the reasons why I do think that God doesn't zoom us straight from the moment of conversion to perfection because he wants to show us in tangible experiential ways the depth of our own sins so that we realize what it is that he's actually done in us. And so you see that in there. And uh, there's a wonderful example that G.I. Williamson uses um, of how it is that even as you become more and more sanctified, more and more like Christ, you actually become more and more dissatisfied with your own failures so that you try harder and harder, again, working out that salvation. Um, but before I say his example, I just remember um, back in the day, some of you recognize the name Dominic Aquila, if you've ever read the Aquila Report online. So Dom was one of my profs uh, back in the day, and uh, at one point, uh, and he was a, a, an adjunct professor, he was uh, pastoring a church. So he was pastoring a church very near um, uh, to where my um, to where my brother lived at the time, so my brother started going to his church, and through him, more than just as a professor, I began hanging out with, with Dom, and so he was at our house, and I can't remember what it was that we were discussing now, uh, but just what stood out, um, and this is like my first year of seminary, and he just remembered, you know, the closer we get to the light, the more you see your imperfections, and that is what G.I. Williamson is getting out of this example. He says that this idea of growing humility in us that we become increasingly dissatisfied the more that we become like Christ is this idea of approaching the light. He says, imagine a man who falls down in the dark into, into mud and he knows that he mud is on him. He can feel it. He could try to get it off of him but as he approaches this light off in the distance, the more he gets closer to it, the more he can see himself and the more he realizes and the more he works to get stuff off of him that he had missed before until, you know, he's almost fully illuminated then he can really see just where all the dirt is and there's more to take off. At first, he just kind of feels it, but he doesn't realize how bad it really is. And I think it's a pretty good analogy. So these are the things I think that we want to be looking at in our own lives. We want to be seeing, uh, do we see that battle? And if you see that battle, if you see yourself increasingly struggling, but at the same time you feel like, wow, I'm just such a failure. It's not because you've lost your salvation and it's not like because you're not saved or whatever. It's precisely because you are saved that you're in that battle and feeling these things. You see how that works? That doesn't mean that you should kick back. If you ever find yourself coasting and cruising in your Christian life, that's when you ought to be concerned that's when you ought to think, okay, something is wrong here. Because if, in fact, you are struggling and if you are in the middle of it, you're going to feel more and more just how wretched we are in ourselves 
and yet how much greater God's grace is. Make sense? Okay, I'm gonna, since we were talking about G.I. Williamson, I'm gonna uh, use one of his quotes. I think he sums it up so well when he says, sanctification is not a process by which we go higher and higher until we can stand before God feeling that we are his holy people. It is rather a process by which we go lower and lower in our estimate of ourselves, while at the same time, we desire above all that we might be holy. For it is only in genuine humility that we really become holy. And I think that really is an excellent summary of the process of sanctification in our lives. So, good, okay, we're past 10 o'clock. Any questions? Comments? Nope? All good? All making sense? All right. Well, then let's, uh, let's wrap it up for today and uh, let's get ready uh, for worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the one who is at work in us both to will and to do what is your good pleasure. And we thank you, Father, that that good pleasure is to increasingly conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. As we have read both in the Ephesians and the Colossians passage, you are renewing us in your image. You are renewing us in knowledge, in righteousness, and in holiness, which incidentally were, was exactly how you created Adam, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. You are reversing everything that we messed up, and you are making us more and more uh, like Jesus is. Thank you, Father, for that work. Help us to not be satisfied with wherever we are in that process. Help us to increasingly grow in our gratitude as we increasingly approach the light and can increasingly see the muddiness as the Holy Spirit increasingly reveals our sin to us. But we also thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit does reveal our sin to us progressively and in stages because we know, oh God, that if your Holy Spirit were to show us the depths of our sin all at once, the very blackness of our hearts. It would overwhelm us. It might even drive us mad. And so we thank you that in your grace and in your fatherly and tenderly care, you do reveal that sin slowly and in small steps. Help us, Father, to continue to grow that we might be able to point to you and say it is all because of your doing so that you get the glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.